0: This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio.
1: And online at SBNationLive.com.
0: From the O'Rani Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges.
2: Well, because it's baseball season, uh, we here at the Talk of Fame Network thought we'd throw you a curve and see how you handle it. Because this is the Talk of Fame Network with Clark, Rick, and Ron. You've heard that before, but it's not your normal Talk of Fame Network program. Nope. This is our summer vacation talk. Yay! Where we take, yeah, we take the vacation. The show does not. No, so how does that work? Well, easy. For the next four weeks, we're going to replay some of the best interviews and shows we've had in the past year. Shows will be here, but uh, no, we won't. In fact, guys, you might want to clue in our listeners as to where you're going to be while these programs are on the air. Gooseman,
3: a little travel, a little baseball, a little golf, and lots and lots of that Texas sunshine.
2: God. He's been everywhere, man. He's been everywhere. Okay, Ron, where are you going to be?
3: Well, uh, I'm going to actually be
4: doing what all these uh, players and coaches when they retire say they're going to do. Spending time with my family, which I actually am going to do. We're going to go to Europe for a couple weeks. Looking forward to that. I'm going to murder a few golf balls, hopefully, and probably some trees and and small animals in the forest. Uh, But not with a gun, with a golf ball. Um, And otherwise, I'm going to avoid... Any mention of Tom Brady, which means I can't call you, Clark, for the next
2: (laughs) Hallelujah. Thank God for that. Um, You know, I will have returned from Canada, um, going to Quebec City. uh, That is, I don't know, are Americans still welcome there? I don't know. but uh, I'm going to start on, well, when I get home, what else? Repairs and improvements to a 150-year-old home that our parents gave us. But um, that's otherwise known as the money pit. But when we return, um, we're going to start right in on the Hall of Fame's class of 2018. I'm talking about us, Talk of Fame Network. And we're going to talk to members of that class, at least those who plan to show up and predict what's next for the senior contributor classes of 2019. And both of you, I know, are on the senior committee. Are the two of you among the five selectors going to Canton in August to make a choice? Ron, you going?
4: Uh, yeah, this year I'm in. Uh, my 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 great and good friend, the Goose Man, is not going to be there because he has okay. other more important things to do, other duties to carry out. But uh, it's uh, it's another tough list. Okay, uh, well, and we can only bring in one guy out, which is always.
2: And so the, the the contributor list is tough too. And Goose, you and I are on that committee. I was there last year. You were not. I know they rotate voters. You going this year?
3: I'll be there. Picking up right. two. Picking up two more contributors. Oops.
2: Okay, well, anyway, a lot to look forward to. But in the meantime, sit back, relax, and enjoy some of our past work, because we will. Yes, that's right. We'll be on vacation. And remember, you're listening, and so, as a matter of fact, are we to the Talk of Fame Network.
0: is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto studios, here's Clark Judge,
2: Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Welcome back to our NFL Special Teams theme show. We'll spend the next two hours discussing what's considered, or is supposed to be considered at least, one-third of the game of football, albeit a forgotten third. And that's special teams. And we're going to start by discussing our Rick Goslin's all-time NFL Special team unit that we published on our Talk of Fame Network website last week. Goose built a 53-player roster exclusively as special teamers. Honest, he did. With 22 on the first team, 22 on the second team, and nine wildcard spots. So, Goose, give us the breakdown of the roster.
3: Well, Clark, as you know, in the NFL, there are 11 starters on offense, 11 starters on defense, but no designated starters on special teams. So I decided to create a starting lineup for teams. My 22 starters include a kicker, a punter, a kickoff specialist, a deep snapper, holder, Personal protector for the punt team, two inside kick rushers, two edge kick rushers, a kickoff return specialist, a punt return specialist, and ten coverage players, essentially ten players who can cover a kickoff.
2: Wow. (laughs) Uh, Any surprises there?
3: Yeah. You know, the fact that there are eight Pro Football Hall of Famers on the 53-player roster might surprise some folks. You know, my kickoff specialist, Morton Anderson. My second team kicker, Jan Stedner, are both Hall of Famers, as is my punter, Ray Guy. Now, those were the obvious choices. Now, here's where it gets interesting. Gale Sayers was chosen for kickoff returns. Ted Hendricks and Alan Page as inside kick blockers. Jack Youngblood as an edge kick blocker. And Paul Krause, the NFL's all-time leading interceptor, I put on the team as a holder. Sayers is enshrined in Canton for his offense. Hendricks, Page, Youngblood, and Krause for the defense. But remember, back in the 1960s and 70s, in the era of 40-player rosters, Starters were four down players, not three. They had roles on special teams, and those particular players excelled in their roles.
2: Hey, Goose, a surprise for me, and it was on your coverage team, a guy who wasn't there. Um, that was Ron Borges. He covered the Patriots for over 30 years.
4: <laughs> you talk about running into the wedge. Yeah. I
2: mean, yeah. <laughs> How would you miss out on him? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, if, if you haven't seen Goose's team, you should. Uh, just go to our website, talkoffamenetwork.com, and you will see that there are four current players on the team. No, Ron's not one of them. Uh, the Colts' Adam Vinatieri is. He's the first-team kicker. New England's Matthew Slater is another one. He's one of the coverage players. So, Ron. Sorry, Ron. He took your place, I guess. Um, and then on the second team, we've got Shane Leckler, who was a punter, and Justin Bethel, one of the coverage players. And, Ron, uh, since you're not on the team, but you did cover the Patriots, and you do cover the Patriots. I want to ask you about uh, a couple of guys you covered, and that's Venetarian Slater. They're both here. Were those players, in, in your mind, slam dunk, first-teamers in your mind, because they were for Goose?
4: Yeah, I mean, to a degree. Look, you know, There's so many great guys that have played special teams, it's hard to say anybody's a slam slam dunk. But uh, I can tell you that Adam made uh, more clutch kicks than anybody I can remember, mm-hmm. and certainly anybody I ever saw. In, in many cases, on the biggest stages in the Super Bowl and the playoffs, and quite often in terrible conditions. He was never kicking inside until he left and went to Indy when he got old. Uh, And I don't know if he was the most accurate kicker ever in a general sense, but with a game on the line, that guy was money for 20 years. And if you needed to win a game, that's the guy you wanted to.
2: Plus, Ron, he never needed a snowplow to clear space He did not.
4: (laughs) He did not, although he probably would have thought of it. He was a smart kid. (laughs) You know, and as as for Slater... uh, uh, he's been a top-level gunner for longer than anyone I can remember. He's a tiny guy. He's lasted mm-hmm. 10 years in a job uh, that's generally impossible for you to do for five. He's been the seven Pro Bowls, uh, and he managed to do it while catching only one, count them, one pass in his career, which means all he's gotten out of pro football has been a result of his ability and willingness to put his ass on the line while knocking opponents' ass over tea kettle. And he did them both really well
2: wonder if he has that one game ball up on a shelf somewhere from that one catch. They <laughs> should make. have given well, him a game ball. For they should have. My God. I'm not sure who's more surprised,
4: it. the guy covering him or him.
2: Yeah, have Tom Brady sign it. Just get him at OT. Oh, never mind. Never mind. Hey, uh, Goose Man, uh, I've just got a fundamental question here. How did you do this? I mean, honestly, it looked like it took hundreds of hours. But, But how did you choose the candidates for each of these positions? Because we're not talking about. 10 years or 15 years we're talking about an all-time list
3: you know back in 1980 only about 10 of the 28 nfl teams employed full-time special teams coaches and i was covering the chiefs then and they had one of those coaches frank gans he had a ranking system for all 28 of the teams that he used to see how his chiefs fared annually in the kicking game and he gave me a copy of that system and i've been ranking nfl special teams every year since then and i'm at 38 years now and counting. And it's quite popular among NFL GMs, head coaches, and special teams coaches. So so over the years, I've been a keen observer of the kicking game and got to know most of the special teams coaches. They tell me the coverage aces who deserve Pro Bowl attention each season also pointed out players who excelled in other capacities. And that's how John Lynch and Brian Mitchell became my first and second team personal protectors. They're recommended to me by head coaches. The same with the holders and deep snappers. But the one thing I did discover, though, is that every special teams coach believes his deep snapper was the best ever. Mm-hmm. A good deep snapper can play 13, 14, 15 seasons. David Binn of the Chargers and Patrick Manley of the Bears set franchise records for games played. If you find a good one, you keep him for a long, long time.
2: Ronnie, did, did any name on there jump off at you, uh, jump off the list? I mean, um, other, of course, <laughs> the guy whose poster you have on your bedroom wallery guy.
4: <laughs> exactly. Yeah, you know, sure. I mean, the guys that I was... You know, around the longest, and, and got to know the best. You know, Ray Guy being one of them, and Matthew Slater, uh, and Vinatieri. Uh, but another guy is Bill Bates. You know, for me and Hank Bauer, mm-hmm. they were the first two guys who people really noticed killing opponents and themselves. On teams. And, you know, there's other guys later, like Tasker and, and, and Matthew, who got a lot of recognition. But they were two guys who got noticed early on for the just for the havoc that they were wreaking. Now, to be fair, you know, Bates got a good amount of pub in his day, probably because he was playing for the Cowboys at a time when they were really the Cowboys. Um, but he and, and, and Hank really opened the door for somebody like Tasker to be talked about, I believe, as a potential Hall of Famer uh, for just the ability to perform on special teams. You know, they were pioneers. And then, one last name I got to add. Uh, my great pal Ted Hendricks, kick him in the head. Mm-hmm. Ted was the greatest kick blocker mm-hmm. I ever saw, and anyone else ever saw either. Period. First ballot. No debate. Sit down.
2: <laughs> well, I, I mentioned Ray Guy, and uh, it's no surprise to you or me that he was the first-team punter. Um, he's another player he covered extensively, but he's also the Hall of Fame candidate, Ron, that you presented, and successfully, I might add, presented to the board of selectors. So for those who never saw him, what made Ray Guy special and, and really the obvious choice for this team?
4: Well, you know, and this is what always irked me about for so many years, him not being in there and various nitwits, you know, talking about Gerald Wilson and people like that. Please. Uh, look, Ray Guy affected the games. He played it. I mean, Jeff Bostic told me one time you know, from the Redskins that it was Ray Guy who was the player who beat them in Super right. Bowl 18. not Marcus Allen, not Jack Squirek, not Jim Plunkett. It was Ray Guy because he controlled field position. And if you remember, early in that game, he had a tremendous athletic play, leapt up to catch one hand at a really high snap. From Todd Christians, I don't know what he was thinking of, but it was, it was Chamberlain couldn't have caught that thing. And he dropped it and blasted the punt downfield. If yep. that goes over his head, it's a whole different game. He was a great athlete, not just a great punter, and it showed. He created hang time. He elevated the punter as a weapon. And, you know, many times, and people didn't know this uh, about Ray, they asked him to punt from his opponent's side of the field. Because they didn't have a lot of confidence in uh, early on in Errol Mann when he was their kicker. So they would punt it down to the three-yard line, the four-yard line, put it out of bounds. Do not put it in the end zone. So, you know, what's better? Uh, a net of 32 and the ball ends up in the two-yard line? Or a net of 45 and the ball's in midfield? You know, <laughs> I, I'll take the one down at the two-yard line.
2: Various nitwits who promoted Gerald Wilson. Yeah, you hear that, Randy Kovitz? Okay, <laughs> there you go. Hey, Gooseman. By the way, I just forgot. Goat. G O A T. Ray got. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Hey, Goose. I wanted to ask you about Brian Mitchell. We've had him on the show here. He holds the NFL record for most career return yards on kicks and punts. You had him on the team as a personal protector. You want to explain that one to me?
3: Yeah, in a lot of cases, it was a matter of finding a spot on the team for a worthy player. You know, except for kick blockers and a few of the returners, kickers. Most of these players had three, four, and five different responsibilities. You know, I could have put Mitchell on the team as a kick returner, as a personal protector, as even a coverage player. You know, Steve Tasker covered kicks, return kicks, block kicks, chase kicks for the Bills. Eddie Metter was an all-decade safety in the 60s. Special teams, he covered kicks, block kicks, was both the holder and personal protector. So in many cases, and in Mitchell's case, it was a matter of rewarding a deserving player by finding a spot on the team for him.
2: Quick now, Goose. Difficult omissions, were there some?
3: Oh yeah, I mean, I could have had eight snappers, eight returners, eight kickers. Pro- probably uh, Gary Anderson, third all team leading scorer. Tough leaving him off.
2: Okay, well, we're going to stop right there and go to break. But when we return, we'll sit down with special teams coach, former special teams coach Bobby April, one of only two coaches, by the way, to be named a three time winner of Goose's Special Teams Annual rankings. That's coming up right after this. Mm-hmm. This is the
0: Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges.
2: Our next guest spent 26 years in the NFL coaching special teams with nine different teams. Twice he was named the NFL Special Teams Coach of the Year, both times with the Buffalo Bills. But more importantly... He's one of only two coaches who were three-time winners in our Rick Gosselin's annual special teams rankings, along with Brad Seely. Plus, he coached the special teams of two Super Bowl teams. That would be the 1995 Steelers and the 2001 Rams. Bobby April, what a long, strange trip it's been. Welcome to the show. Hey, thank
1: you very much, Clark. And, Ron, uh, good to talk to you again. Rick, congratulations on that article uh, of the all-time special teams uh, unit. Man, that was
5: fun to read.
3: Bobby, in, in the 1980s you coached defense in college at Arizona Southern County, Ohio State. So how does a defensive coach in college wind up handling special teams in the NFL and was it a difficult transition?
1: Well, for me, I was very fortunate. Uh, first of all, I did I did coach a phase and, and most coaches did. We had eight coaches in those days. Uh, assistant coaches. And we all had a fa- or most of us had a phase. And I had a phase, and then about the third year I was with Larry Smith, maybe the fourth, he made me the special teams coordinator, even though I'd coached defensive line with him at one time and then the secondary. He made me the defensive, I mean, I'm sorry, he made me the special teams coordinator. But even at that time, I I really just did the off-season stuff and, and tried to prepare the, the camp schedule for, for him and that type of thing. So I had some administrative duties more than anything. But I got in the league because Keith Rowan, who was a longtime coach, his dad, Dick Rowan, was a legendary college coach in Division III. Uh He really got me the job at Atlanta. And then when I went in there, he, he really coached me up. And then Jerry Glanville really was, um, I mean, you could say he was a special teams coach. We did everything together uh, in preparation and everything. He was on the field with me all the time coaching. And he was in the meetings always uh, with me, um, so it, it was a it was a very easy transition for me, and it, it wouldn't have been except for those two guys.
4: What's the the most difficult part of of coaching special teams in the in the NFL when you're getting a lot of these players that probably have never done it before? They've always been the star of their teams, and now they come in the NFL and you tell them they're going to cover punts. What's how difficult is that?
1: Well. You, you know, and, and you, all all of you guys are familiar with that area. There's a there's a lot of of different areas that are that are really challenging to it. That that kind of sets it apart for for a lot of reasons. I won't go into, them. but the 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 biggest difficulty I I feel over my entire career that I ever had overcome big, uh, with all the challenges, the biggest albatross was was when we cut. Uh, you know, our best player, or we cut the guy that was the best performer, uh, because then we completely sabotaged everything that, you know, we'd said, we talked about, we, you know, so we, we lost some credibility on a lot of stuff. And I, I think just what you said, it just exasperated the, the, the situation you gave with the guy that comes in. Uh, you know, there's a lot of obstacles to that area. And, and one of them is, that they have to overcome uh, the perception that it's it's it, it, you know that's for somebody else. It's it's not for me. Right. So it was you know it, it, it's a it's a difficult part of the game, especially when you know you cut your your best player, and that's happened a lot of times to a lot of a lot of us that, that coach special teams.
2: So so Bobby, how do you overcome that perception? I mean, I think some of these rookies, and you probably have seen them come to camp and they go through the motions, figuring, oh, you know, I'm just biding my time. Until it become a starter, how does a coach impress on a group of young new players that what you do on special teams really is significant and important?
1: Well, I, you know, it, the, the, the the job itself is teaching, uh, but what you said is another aspect of the job, and to a high degree, I don't know if it's fifty fifty, but it's pretty close. It's a it's a sales job, you know. It's like any endeavor uh, in, in sales, you you got a You've got to sell them on it, and you've got to constantly preach it. I mean, most people won't do any job, much less football, without seeing the rewards. You know, it's kind of like uh, the Bronx tale. Uh, you know, the kids the kids being brought up to, uh, you know, make good grades, do everything right, and, and he turns to crime because he sees all the rewards and the cars and the women and the money and everything else. And and it, it's special teams is similar to that. Um there's a lot of there's a lot of selling, there's a lot of selling on on the what can happen for you and your development, and what can happen for the team. That when we win, everybody everybody benefits. And outside of that, um, uh, you know that's that's the selling I always try to do, and it was a big part of it because. You know, it is it is a big part of it. You're not just teaching them. You know, it's it, there's, that, there's that motivational side, and then you always have to work with the administration because you start out with 95 guys. You, you, you know, you go to 53, and then on game day, you, you end up with 45. So there's an administrative uh, deal, and you, you know, like anything else, too. The greatest strength is the ability to hire. So hopefully you hire those guys.
3: Bobby, there are some key pieces on special teams, as you know. Kicker, punter, deep snapper. Gunner, returner. Which of the five is the most important in your eyes? So, in other words, which of those positions would be your first choice to start building a special team?
1: Well, you know, Chuck Knox, uh, and not Chuck Knox. I, I was thinking of Chuck Knox because he just he just passed. Um, uh, George Allen. George Allen said that the the, the most important position on the field is the snapper and, and by all rights, you know, that that's, that's a pretty good assessment because if you can't get that snap back, there's going to be a lot of bad things that happen. <laughs> um, so, I, but, but with that said, with that said that the varying degrees from the, you, you'll have to have a quality guy to do that. And he, he accommodates everybody else to do their job better, but there's, there's, very slight degrees of increments between the very best in the league and the next 10 guys. I'm not saying to the 32nd guy, but uh, so that position is critical, and certainly it's overlooked like many of the key special teams pieces, but I think the kicker right now, and and even going back, I I go back to the 95 Pittsburgh Steelers team, and I watched it probably because I was sensitive to it, but uh, Norm Johnson was just such an integral part to that team. You know, we were pretty much a, 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 a ground attack and, and, and conservatives in some ways. And, um, and, and Norm was so good. I mean, he was like 83%, but, you know, he, he led the league in field goals. He kicked a bunch of game winners. We led the league in starting point on kickoffs. So his kickoffs and his field goals were just so huge. Uh, that he was a really, really important guy on the team. And I thought more important than anybody we had on special teams. And so I kind of go based off of that, but kind of in general, you know, they're the golden goose that scores points.
4: Hmm. It's funny, though, you mentioned that uh, the snapper. I remember when Parcells first came to New England, Bobby, He uh, one of the first guys he brought in was uh, uh, an old center, you know. And I said to him, "What the hell are yeah. this guy? In there? You got 50 holes. in it. What the hell are you bringing him?" I'll never forget it. He said, "I am not going to be held hostage by that position. We can't start the game if we can't snap the ball." <laughs> I've never forgot that. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So you know, you hey, if 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 Barcell and George Allen say snappers the most important position, forget about what I said about.
5: <laughs>
1: <that>.
3: <laughs>
1: uh, Guys, those two guys know football as good as anybody. <laughs>
4: <laughs> hey, you've you've gone through a lot of players, seen a lot of players. Uh, obviously, who's the best coverage player you've been around, and and what made him special?
1: Well, boy, you know that's always tough because uh, if you're listening, audiences have some of my guys. A bunch of them probably think they are, and <laughs> and they would. I'd like to say there was a tie of about twenty guys, but uh, you know, looking at your. At your article, uh, I had three of those guys uh, Albert Shelley and Fred McAfee. And I had Rufus Porter, but he was right. It was the second to last year. He wasn't playing teams like he did in Seattle. But I knew he was a great special teamer. So I, I, I would, you know, just to, because I want to answer your question, I, I think Albert Shelley, Albert Shelley was mm-hmm. probably the best. He was the best. and he you know, you recognize him. and am boy, I'm so glad you did that um, article because, man, I was so happy for all those guys that got that recognition because uh, uh, they deserve it. You know, they all of them were such warriors. But Albert, were, Albert was so, you know, so strong, so fast, so tough, so determined. Uh, he was just almost impossible to stop. You know, whether he's double teamed or not, he just he he was fearless too, and he was, he was a tough guy, a good character guy, but boy, tough. And uh, I, I you know he kind of set the standard that because that was my first year coaching, and he was already really good. And then he went on and uh, made a couple of Pro Bowls, you know, after that. And uh, but he was he, 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 I would say I'd have to say him, and, I, and I'm I'm gonna agree with you on that, have him on there. Had a lot of guys that are, that are good coverage guys. Uh, Albert was good, and Fred McAfee was had such a passion, love for football, and enthusiasm. He, he raised the level of special teams by his play and, and his leadership.
2: Hey, Bobby, we've got about thirty seconds left. Uh, which return specialist gave you the most trouble?
1: The guy, I, the guy I always feared the most was was Josh Cribbs, and uh, there's so many great ones, but Josh was. Just uh, boy, was he fun to watch. He was so tough, you know, so physical, so determined. He was great.
2: Bobby, thanks so much for the time, and, and honestly, thanks for reminding us about the value of the kicking game. Really appreciate it.
1: Well, I appreciate being on, and uh, thank you for having me. Thanks, Bobby. Thanks,
2: Bobby. thanks, Bobby. That was former special teams coach Bobby April. Up next, it's another former special teams coach, Bill Cower. You heard me right, Bill Cower. This is the Talk of the Network.
0: This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio from the O'Reilly Auto Parts Studios. Here's Clark
2: Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Bill Cowher is a Super Bowl winning coach who now sits on the CBS set on Sundays at NFL Studio and listen to one. Almost 62% of his games during his 15 seasons as head coach in Pittsburgh. But long before he became a head coach, and long before he even became a coach, period, Bill Cower was chasing kicks as a special team with the Philadelphia Eagles and Cleveland Browns. And of course he broke into coaching as a special teams coach with the Browns in the 1980s. And today, well today, he's breaking in as our special teams expert to tell us what impact special teams had on his career. Bill, welcome back.
6: Great to be back talking with you guys, and I love the fact that you're talking about a phase of the game that sometimes so often gets overlooked. Awesome.
3: Yes, sir. Bill, you signed with the Eagles as an undrafted college free agent out of North Carolina State in 1979. How long did it take you to figure out that special teams were going to be your ticket in the NFL? You
6: know what, Goose, when you sign as a free agent, number one, you realize that you were not signed probably, you're going there, and you gotta find your niche, something that makes you different from other players. And I think there's two ways of doing it. Number one is you need to be versatile, which is you need to be a smart player where you can play multiple positions. And number two, you gotta be good on fourth down, as I used to call it. I said it you know, it's a special teams player and you know, I was fortunate enough I played a little bit of that in college at N C State and even in high school. And so most of the players that come to the National Football League and play in the NFL, they really don't play much special teams in, in college. So I was just hoping that, that could, if I could find a little bit of a niche and kind of make me stand out amongst the others, was being able to be versatile and be good on fourth down.
4: Well, Marty, Sharon, uh of course, hired you as, uh, to coach special teams with the Browns in 85, and you were 28 years old and you'd just gone from playing the year before uh, to coaching. How difficult of that Adjustment was it sort of overnight go from player to coach, and and at, at 28 you were coaching some guys that probably were older than you were.
6: You know, Ron, I was actually coaching guys that I played with them was two years earlier, which was ironic because I was traded from the Browns in 1984 to uh, to, to the Philadelphia Eagles, and when Marty came back, uh, uh, I actually. Uh, it was actually '83 I got traded, but when I came back, I was actually coaching players I had played with. And the one thing about the National Football League is that uh, you know players respect players who have been there before, and so. You know, while it was difficult, because I think going from playing to coaching, you have to kind of go to the next level. You kind of separate yourself. There's got to be lines of delineation, and I realized that. But at the same time, I had been on this field earlier, and I used to run up and down the sideline and realize what it took to be a good special teams player, what it took. To really have good units and so you know we try to separate ourselves and, and Marty was so good about giving us the time and practice and giving us the effort and giving us the resource of having good players you know we had Frank Minifield starting corner on our punt return team trying to block punts so you know he he took it seriously and it certainly can help uh, uh, the coach itself when you when you have a, a head coach who takes
2: understands the importance of it. Well, Bill, since you made that transition, that gives you a unique perspective, of course. I mean, you played in the NFL and special teams, and then you coach those guys. You mentioned what goes into making a good special teams player. What goes into making a great special teams player in the NFL? What, what traits are you looking for?
6: Well, you know what, Clark? I think you look at it, and I said, yeah, you got to have speed. I mean, let's face it. I think speed is one thing you're talking about. Uh, Special teams is being played in space, special teams being played over the course of 40 to 60 yards. But you also have to have a fearlessness, you know, from that standpoint. And you have to understand angles. And I think that's the one thing about the game of football is understanding what kind of speed you have. But if you understand angles, and understand what your limitations are, you can be good. And you can understand what's going on, you're trying to gather information as you're running, not just running blindly. Those are the things that you look for. And I think good units have a good mix in, uh, of players that are smart, players that are fast, and players that have great size. And that's what you're trying to look for. Good special teams units are like a good offense and defense. It's, it's, you want to have speed, size, experience, and you.
3: Bill, how did your background on special teams impact your philosophies as a head coach?
6: Well, I think they impacted a lot because, you know, I think the one thing you did is that you you appreciated the little guy. You appreciated every role on the team. It wasn't just about offense. It wasn't just about defense. It's it's the hidden yardage that gets lost and never measured really in the course of a game, you know, when you can average 45 or 48 yards on a net punt, when you can make teams have to go 80 yards uh, for a drive. That kind of hidden yardage does not get lost, and I think when you talk about being a, a head coach, um, you know, I, I think my experience in, in coaching special teams and just talking to the team as a unit. Uh, when you think about, you know, outside of the head coach, what what other coach on the team talks to everybody on, on the football team, offense and defense. You know, offensive coaches coach offense, defensive team coaches coach defense, but the special teams coach coaches everybody. So I just always thought that, you know, it's a, you know, I think yardage, the hidden yardage is so important in the game when it comes down to the end of it is, you know, the ability to shorten the field and lengthen the field uh, to your advantage I think is really an integral part of the game of football.
4: And for a lot of teams, uh, special teams are primarily non-starters, kind of back half of the roster guys, uh, many times undrafted players or low-round picks. Uh, and there seems to be an annual turnover in a lot of those guys. So, how hard is it for a coach to develop, you know, continuity from game to game and season to season when you have a deck of players that is often shuffling?
6: Yeah, you know, Ron, that's a good question. I think that's the one thing that's probably getting lost. I think when you look at today's cap, um, you know, I always feel like we have a core five. You know, a core five of guys that you could build around. These are guys, just like you have great offensive players that take them into the to and in, in to watch tape. Um, good special teams players are watching tape. They're looking for that little bit of an edge, or looking for you know, some kind of clue that can get them to understand what the concept of the return is, what the concept of the coverage is. And so, you know, I think in that core there. But the one thing is, the, I'll say this: every coverage element starts with the kickers. Every return starts with the returners. So you got to have two good kickers and returners. And I think from there, what you're trying to do, I think, is accentuate the strengths and mask the weaknesses.
2: Bill, I'm just wondering here, Bill Belichick, John Harbaugh, and you all started in the NFL as special teams coaches. And you all went on to win Super Bowls, as we know. And you've addressed what makes a special teams coach prepared to be a head coach um, because he coaches everybody, as you said. But here's the question I've asked for years, and I don't understand. I asked John Harbaugh this question. Why don't more special teams coaches get that opportunity? I really thought when Harbaugh won the Super Bowl in 2012 that something would happen. There might be a breakthrough. But there wasn't.
6: You know, I I think it's a good uh, question, Clark. And I think the one thing is, you know, sometimes it does get devalued. I mean, we keep talking about it every year. We going to take away the kickoff. It's you know, move back the extra point. You know, The safety issue has become such a big part of the game. Um, and so uh, the one thing I think even with that being said, it's even more, to me, good special teams that are done year in and year out should be looked at because these are coaches now who are adapting to the game, the changing, the ever-changing game, which safety has to be in the forefront of everything we do. And I get that. And I I agree with you. I think we have to sit back and take a greater look because you're talking about a philosophical approach to the game where you're trying to bring offensive and defensive players together, together, which is the same thing in your same role as a head coach is. And that's why, you know, you sit there and it's interesting you said that because you look at Bill, you look at John, you look at myself, You're gonna probably hear some of the same concepts involved when talking about the meeting, and talk in terms of everybody doing their role. No one person is bigger than the other, and I think Mm -hmm. the value that we put on special teams player and special teams play in general, we realize how integral a part it is in winning football games. So I agree with you from that standpoint, Clark. I think there should be more opportunities for special teams. Coach, just give them a chance to get in the room, listen to them, look at what their, their, their stats are, just like you do with offensive coordinators and defensive coordinators. But you know what? hire a person, don't just look at them make sure you listen to a person because sometimes there are some special men out there who have a way to resonate with players.
3: Most rookies come in thinking they're going to be stars and that special teams are just a necessary evil until then you know, unless you're a high draft pick, you're going to have to play special teams as a head coach during training camp, could you see the light bulb going on for some of these guys that hey, I'd better figure out this special teams thing or I'm not going to be here
6: Yeah, I mean, and I think, Goose, that's the the point. I mean, because some of these guys have never done it before, which goes back to the importance of special teams coaches. I go back to what we were talking about before, what Clark said. He said, you know, these are also not just guys who are coaching special teams, but these are guys who are trying to teach people who's doing this for the first time. And so, yeah, I mean, for some of these guys, you have to pull them aside and say, listen, this is your niche. This is where you're going to be. Hey, I had Yancey Thigpen before he became a Pro Bowl receiver. He was covering punts. He was a flyer. He was number three on the kickoff team. You know, we had Orpheus Roy, who was a defensive lineman. You run, just run down the tracks. Run down those tracks, and that's what you're going to cover kickoffs for. So I'm just – these are the guys that, you know, to me, that's – you know, you, you, you pull them aside and you tell them how important it is. You sit in every meeting as a head coach. I never miss a special teams meeting. I want to sit in the back because I wanted them to know how important it was, not just to them, but it was important to me. And so if they knew it was important to me, then then I knew it would be important to them. So, yeah, it's, you know, special teams, an integral part of the game, um, you know, again, all the hidden yards involved with it. And, you know, I just think it's it's one of those elements. It truly is the third element of winning football games.
4: Well, you know, uh, we hear all the time how special teams are a third of the game, but certainly the Hall of Fame hasn't treated it that way. Uh, You know, Goose and I... Pound the table periodically about some of these guys. That was a big Ray Guy fella. Uh, took a long time to get him in. And now Steve Tasker's name comes up uh, a, n- a number of times. He's been a semifinalist. Uh, do you think there should be a room a room in Canton for an elite special team player? I mean, not a kicker or a punter, or, but a guy who made his bones running down the field and, and, and making plays, making tackles.
6: Does anybody make more sacrifices than those playing special teams? And, I, and I, I absolutely believe so because you talk about the three phases of every game and every coach will talk about it. There's offenses, defense, and there's special teams. And usually if you win two of those three, you're going to win the football game. And, You know, and to have great special teams you gotta have special players. And sometimes you have special guys. Guys like you talk about with Steve Tasker, Hank Bauer. These guys were game changers. These were guys that you had a game plan for. And you talk about Hall of Famers, right? You're talking about people who had presence on the field that you had to change your game plan for because they had they were that special. Well that's true about a lot of these guys that you guys listed in those hundred top special teams players of of all time. These were guys that you know they could change a game. Um, uh, with, with a return, with a coverage, um, and we see it day in, day out, you know, knocking the ball, keeping the ball from going into the end zone, a down putt, that's inside the two yard line, and it suddenly changes the whole field position of a game. So there is no question in my mind, Ron, that sometimes I think that's one element of the game that's gotten overlooked, and I think, uh, is, I uh, said unfairly been, uh, devalued because I think a good special teams player can have it make a difference
2: in winning and losing football games. Hey, Bill, this was special for us. Thanks so much for the time, and we'll catch you this fall on CBS. Thanks again.
6: Uh, thanks, guys. Thanks, Bill. Thanks, Bill.
2: As former Steelers head coach Bill Cowher. Up next, it's a two-minute drill. You'll listen to the Talk of Fame Network. This is Over the Night with Matt Harab.
0: As far as the Kawhi Leonard situation goes, my goodness, do the Spurs have all the leverage. Here's what i do if I'm the San Antonio Spurs. I do not have secret meetings with Philadelphia. I do not have secret phone calls with the Los Angeles Lakers. I want an auction. A bidding war.
3: Okay. Right, start to bid with uh, Markel Fultz. Markel <laughs> yeah. Fultz. Markel Fultz. Markel Fultz. All right. I'm going to. Kyle Kuzma. Lonzo right. Ball. Mm-hmm. Ball. Kyle Kuzma. Lonzo Ball. Kyle Kuzma. Ball. We're going to throw in a pick here. Philadelphia 76ers throwing in that, that pick. We're also going to bring in Dario Saric. Dario Saric. What do you have, Lakers? i uh, well, okay. uh, uh, first round pick. Yeah. And uh, Lonzo Ball and uh, Kyle Kuzma. Spurs, they're not giving you Brandon
4: Ingram.
0: I can give you Markel Fultz. I know that you can fix Markel Fultz's jump shot. Go
3: go twice? Yeah. So to Philadelphia. Okay,
0: that's what I want. Do it on live TV. I want to hear and see the negotiation. A three-way call. Over the night with Matt Harab, Monday through Friday from 1 a.m. to 6 a.m. Eastern on SB Nation Radio.
1: If business, pleasure, or sports fandom takes you to Houston, Dallas, Austin, Fort Worth, or San Antonio, check out culturemap.com to get the scoop on the local favorites. From the best restaurants, bars, pubs, and clubs, to the biggest sights and sounds each city has to offer, CultureMap has it all. Just head over to CultureMap.com. The expert team personally reviews and visits each spot to make sure you get the best experience. And if you're coming back, sign up for free CultureMap updates at CultureMap.com.
0: SB Nation AM. AM.
5: Media, Sports media in particular missed out on talking about LeBron James. It was an absolute, you're you're 100% correct, and that's what I've been saying today. I mean, when you think about what we had eight years ago, what we had four years ago, to what we have now, it really feels like we went from the decision to the letter to the whisper, and it's not even that loud. From one move to his third move it has gone from simple quick press release get out of the country and let other teams make the news there was so much more hype around where is he going to go I mean the billboard war is going on between Philadelphia it was like there was this all this build up then all of a sudden it happens it's just boom there it is And kind of like I mean, sex I'm- <laughs> it, was over, it was all right? this build up, and then boom, gone. And yeah, and then usually one side is massively disappointed.
0: SB Nation AM with Tony D. Weekday mornings from 6 to 9 Eastern on SB Nation Radio. SB Nation AM. AM.
5: If you're going to return a product and they say to you, do you have your receipt? You don't say, oh, it's here somewhere, and start rummaging through your purse or wallet or pockets to see if you can find it. Have it with you on hand. Like I said, grouchy old me will be happy so that I can get in and out and do whatever I have to do in my day, which is usually nothing, but still, that's none of your business.
0: SB Nation AM with Tony D, weekday mornings from 6 to 9 Eastern on SB Nation Radio. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin,
2: and Ron Borges. Well, we're closing in on the first half of our show, so it's time for us to do something special. That's the 2 that's right, it's the two-minute drill with Rick calling this week's shot. So, Gooseman, let's get going.
3: Carol Owens will receive a bust in Canton in August and hopes to be back on an NFL field in September. Should the Hall of Fame Selection Committee reconvene for a revote on his candidacy?
2: Yes, sirree, but it should have done it back in February. <laughs>
4: Please, no, I can think of some other guys I'd rather have a re on.
3: The NFL is awarding future Super Bowls to Phoenix and New Orleans this week. Which two cities would you
2: have chosen? Easy, San Diego and San Diego. Uh,
4: it's
3: easier than that. Viva Las Vegas! No,
2: oh, jeez.
3: <laughs> Nashville is a favorite for the 2019 NFL Draft. What city would you have chosen? And you can't use the last answer.
2: <laughs> oh no! Well, then I have nothing to say. Viva Las Vegas! Remember, this man. Every draft pick becomes a gamble. <laughs>
4: They have a cheetah club in Las Vegas, so I've heard. But how about New Orleans? <laughs> what, what's a cheetah club? I don't know. I just hear about these stories.
3: The Gooseman Patriots told me. enshrining tackle Matt Light in their Hall of Fame. Who would you have enshrined?
4: Barger. <laughs> Leon Gray, the greatest left tackle they ever had. He's light years ahead of Light. And he couldn't carry his jock
3: strap in a large bag. No disrespect. Hard Knocks will feature the Cleveland Browns this summer. Which team would you have featured?
2: Well, I would have featured the city of New York, but I'd call it Hard Knicks. (laughs) Hey, look, who's faced Hard Knocks than the Brownies?
3: What's a bigger concern for NFL owners, the national anthem or gambling? Tackling.
4: They ain't worried about gambling. They're going to get paid off of gambling. They're partners in gambling.
3: Saquon Barkley, Charles Barkley, or Barkley Plager?
2: Barkley James Harvest. That would be a prog rock English band, guys. Barkley Center, home of Brooklyn Boxing.
3: Johnny Manziel won a Heisman Trophy. Will he ever win
2: a Grey Cup? Only if it's served after closing time. I
4: don't
3: know if he'll win it, but his coach will win the Grey Hair Cup. (laughs) What lessons have the Detroit Lions learned from the hiring of Matt Patricia?
2: Never hire someone from New England if Tom Brady isn't attached to him.
4: Don't use a search firm to find your coach.
2: Hire TMZ. That's the end of our first hour, but there's more to come with former special team star Hank Bauer and the only guy to hold for Hall of Fame kickers Jan Stenrud and Morton Anderson. That's coming up here on the Talk of Fame Network.
0: This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio.
5: And
1: online at SBNationLive.com.
0: From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges.
2: Welcome back to our number two of our Talk of Fame Network special. That's as in special teams. I'm Clark along with Rick and Ron. And guys, no matter what we're talking about, uh, we must acknowledge the passing of a special player. And that's former LSU legend Billy Cannon who died last week at the age of 80. I know he's not in the Pro Football Hall of Fame, but he is in the College Hall, the Louisiana Sports Hall, and the LSU Sports Hall, and I imagine in Ron's Hall, since he played with the Raiders. He's in my so, room, right behind me. <laughs> <in my back. laughs> no, good for him. He <laughs> never goes away. So uh, since we're talking about special teams, I thought it incumbent on us to mention that one of Billy Cannon's most memorable plays, which was at LSU, in fact, his most memorable play, Was an 89-yard punt return, the Halloween run in the fourth quarter of the game against number three-ranked Mississippi, where he ran out of seven tackles and scored the only touchdown in a 7-3 LSU victory. And believe it or not, they still talk about it down there. And Ron, I could see why. I watched the video on YouTube. Talk about special. Oh, that was a special to, play. It's
4: incredible play, and down in Baton Rouge, they play it on television every year around Halloween to remind yeah, people right. of what a night uh, it was, pouring rain. But you know what mo- a lot of people forget about that game is that Billy Cannon wasn't done after that return. Mississippi drove down the field all the way to the LSU goal line right at the end of the game. One short run more, and they win. So what do they do? They add a cannon to the Chinese bandits. They put him in a defensive back, and who makes the game-saving tackle? My boyhood idol, the aptly named Billy Cannon, who exploded on Mississippi on offense and on defense. What a tremendous player and a legend. Yep. And when I
3: was a kid, man, I would have done anything to beat Billy Cannon. Not a bad run. Heisman Trophy in 59. <laughs> AFL Championship game MVP in both 60 and 61. Ron, have we done a state your case on Billy Cannon yet? <sighs> I can feel it coming. I'm, I'm yeah, feeling I my
4: feel my fingers it itching.
2: <laughs> of course, Gooseman, you know he was special for another reason, too. Not only is he an outstanding football player, he was the first major rookie signing by the AFL in 1960, and he was at the center of an historic courtroom battle. I think the Ron probably covered between the Houston <laughs> Oilers and L.A. Rams, both of whom signed in rookie ca- contracts. But guess what? The Oilers finally won.
3: Yeah, the Rams filed suit because he signed the contract with them first. But the a federal judge ruled that Pete Rozelle had taken advantage of a naive college. What? So Cannon was free to play for the Oilers, with whom he became pro football's first $100,000 player. About $70,000 more than the Rams are going to pay him.
2: Billy Cannon was one of my favorite players, too, Ron. And not because he played for the Raiders, but because he played for LSU. got I love the Tigers back then. And those Chinese bandits. Anyway, Billy Cannon was something special. And we're going to be talking about something special as we go on. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network.
0: This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio from the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios. Here's Clark Judge,
2: Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Welcome back to a special edition of the Talk of Fame Network, and that's special as in special teams. But I'd like to mention someone or something else that's special, and that's a special player. Now, I'm talking about J.J. Watt, who was last year's NFL Man of the Year for what he did for victims of the flooding in Houston and who might well be this year's repeat winner for what he offered to do for victims of last week's shooting at Santa Fe High School and and what he did was offer to pay for the funerals of those who were killed and Ron, I, I don't care if this guy plays another down to me, he's already in my Hall of Fame
4: well yeah, I mean look, he's a, he's a Hall of Fame citizen and really uh, as, as much a big deal as we make of the Hall of Fame and it is a big deal uh, being a Hall of Fame citizen is really what it should be all about for all of us and he certainly uh, you know, has put himself in that position a yeah. great player but a much greater
2: person you can and goose. The man uh, of the year award. You can retire the man of the year award. Yeah, just re- and that's. what I was going to say. I mean, th- it seems like this guy's got a future after football, and it's basically in anything he wants—be politics, football, TV. He really seems to have a knack for doing the right thing.
3: I hope he stays out of politics. He's too good a guy.
2: <laughs> yeah. Anyway, when we talk about special guys in the NFL, JJ Watt's name should be at or near the top of the list, and and not. I want to make sure you understand it's not because of what he does on the football field. Okay, today we've been zeroed in on our Rick Olsen's all-time NFL special teams unit, which appeared last week on our website, thebtalkoffamenetwork.com. And what was significant about it was that the thumbprints of Bill Belichick and Bill Parcells are all over it. I mean, look at the list. Adam Vinatieri, Randall Thompson, Matthew Slater, Larry Wiggum, Tatupo, Izu, Benny Thompson, Ron Wolfley, you name it. Ron, you were around both of those coaches my condolences. <laughs> was there emphasis on special teams that appeared or that was a, that were apparent uh, when you were covering them? Oh, certainly. I mean, Parcells always treated special
4: teams players with great uh, respect. And he made clear that games would be won or lost on how well those teams played. Uh, it wasn't just sense of bodies out there running around I remember he brought Steve Diossi in uh, late in his career to New England uh, by recognizing his ability as a a long snapper Uh, and you know Steve was one of the first guys he brought in not to play linebacker but just to snap the ball cleanly and be someone who could impress you know the younger players about the importance of special teams and and it wasn't just cannon fodder and I think that bled over into Belichick he learned from Bill and became a real believer in putting you know many of his starting players uh, on teams which he does you know they got 53 guys, he doesn't care. He, he puts off and die. I diet. I always agree with that. You know, I was there when, when Gronk broke his arm, uh, blocking mm-hmm. for an extra point, which he spent three days arguing with me trying to defend. And I have noticed this and mentioned to it several times since. I don't see him blocking those extra point sets, and none of them are getting uh, uh, blocked. But it just shows you the importance that both guys uh, put on it. They, they wanted their best players
2: uh, out there. So they treated them better than they treated you, Ron?
4: Well, everybody, they treated everybody better than I
2: treated me <laughs> Okay. Well, in the first hour, I know I asked you about Matthew Slater. Um, he was voted to his seventh Pro Bowl last season, and that ties Hall of Fame candidate Steve Tasker for the NFL record for special teams performer. Um, Ron, as you know, they drafted Matthew in the sixth round out of UCLA in 2008, and then, at that time, they listed him as a wide receiver. So, Ron... Put your thinking cap on here for a second if you can. If you've got one, if you've got one, find it if you can. Did did the Patriots expect him to compete as a wide receiver or or did Belichick earmark him as a special team's ace from the very beginning?
4: I I think they always saw him as as if he was going to make it, that's what it was. And I know that he told me and his dad confirmed that his dad told him before he went off to his first training camp, uh, You know, if you're going to make that team, son, you're not going to make it catching passes. You're going to be running out of kicks and and you've got to – Take it seriously. Uh, what they liked was his speed and the pedigree from his dad. Of course, was Hall of Fame left tackle Jackie Slater. Although the one thing he didn't get from his dad was size. Yeah, they also right. liked the, his intelligence. You know, he, he was—he's a willing and competitive guy. But he wasn't just running down there blind. You know, right from the start, you know, they understood that he understood what they wanted him to do. Uh, And, you know, his dad told me one time that until his son started playing special teams and he watched how much he studied and all these things, Jackie himself always thought special teams guys are guys who can't play football. (laughs) That's why they're playing special teams. And then he realized how much more uh, goes into it. Um, You know, Matthew is really a special guy, um, as his record shows. And and I think Belichick realized that pretty quickly his rookie year Uh, and has said, you know, several times that, uh, uh, you know, he's the type of football player you want.
2: Well, Goose, uh, you put this team together. i tell you, the other thing that jumped out at me about this this club were all the undrafted players and low-round draft picks on there. I mean, you look at Vinatieri, Bill Bates, Bauer, Hank Bauer, Larry Izzo, Kasim Osgood. They were all among the undrafteds. And then Billy White, shoes Johnson. who's was a 15th-round draft pick. Albert Shelley in the 11th-round Raina Thompson, Mosi Tatupo, both eight-rounders. I mean, the list goes on and on, Goose. Um, it, it just, I guess that's the nature of special teams, right?
3: Yeah, these are the roster discards, the non-starters. You know, you're asking your offensive coordinator and your defensive coordinator to compete with the best players on your roster. But you're asking your special teams coordinator to compete with the worst players on the roster. And when an offensive starter or a defensive starter goes down, his replacement generally comes from that core of special teams players. And that further weakens his coaching hand. You know, coaching special teams in most seasons becomes a 17-week battle for survival.
2: Yeah, um, and, and a long one too, as Bobby April mentioned. Um, and I thought that was interesting. He was talking about a, as a teacher, and then you have to be a salesman. I, I think that's an interesting comment. But also, I found interesting Goose was a note you had in your column about Tasker and Bates. Um, I'm sure a lot of our listeners have, have seen it, but if they haven't, tell us about it, would you?
3: Yeah, they, these are two of the greatest special teams aces in NFL history, and uh, both retired in the same off season, ironically. So I asked both separately, what was their toughest job on special teams? They each gave me the same answer, teaching a new group of young players each season that what they do on special teams is important. So many young players arriving in the NFL expect to be starters. Most were stars in their college teams. They were not asked to play special teams. So they assumed playing special teams in the NFL was just a necessary evil on their way to offensive stardom. What they don't understand is that they need to exert the same amount of energy and focus on special teams as they do on offense and defense. You can't go through the motions on special teams in this league. Either you're going to get hurt or you're going to get a teammate hurt. You know, When I was working the combine all those years, one of my favorite questions to wide receivers and running backs was, quote, when was the last time you made a tackle? If you're not a high draft pick, there's a good chance you're going to have to make a tackle mm. on special teams for before you ever catch a pass or take a handoff. So in training camp, work on your tackling.
2: Ron, I want to ask you something that uh, I addressed Bill Cowher in the first hour, and that's uh, when you look back at it, Marv Levy, Bill Belichick, Cowher, John Harbaugh, they all broke into the NFL coaching special teams. We know that. And they all went on to become head coaches who took teams to Super Bowls. But every off season, when teams are looking for head coaches, and this is the thing I don't get, and that's what I – brought up to Cowher. NFL owners want guys who coach offense or defense, but not special teams. Why don't special teams coaches get that respect, and and what needs to happen for that to change?
4: Well, Clark, uh, that's a great question, uh, for which I really have only one answer or one word, which would be ignorance. Uh, you know, other than the head coach, the only the special teams coach is is dealing with everybody on the team because at, at some point, you know, everybody's either playing on teams or they're backing up a guy who's playing on a team. Mm-hmm. So they're dealing with everybody. Uh, they're the only coach, other than the head coach, to address the entire team. Usually on Saturdays, uh, they have to plan and coordinate a number of different units, both offensive-minded units and defensive-minded units. So they have to understand the whole game, uh, and they have to understand skills and athletic ability that are needed for a bunch of different uh, jobs. And they have to come up with game, game plans that fit both specific opponents and the specific skills or lack thereof of their own players. So which part of that doesn't qualify them to be head coach? You know, I, I don't know me. Uh, I mean, I don't know. It beats me. And, and I'll tell you, most of them uh, are also, uh, you know, pretty kind of fun guys to be around. You know, yeah, I think that's yeah, a exactly. good thing, too. You know, I mean, you yeah. you, you, you want a head coach, is just, you know, no. One of the most dour people in history, you know, of course, is one of the greatest coaches in history in Belichick's case. Uh, um, But in general, I I, I think that there's missing the boat on these guys, and they should at least give them a real look. Bring them in, listen to them, uh, uh, you know, and and see what they bring to the table, and they may be surprised.
3: You know, I've always maintained that special teams coaches do perhaps the best job in all of coaching because they're asked to do more with less than any coach in a roster. Like yeah, I said earlier, yeah. if a guy goes down, you've got to plug a guy in, and, and he's got to be ready to play. These guys are yeah. dealing with the bottom half of the roster, and, and like Ron said, they're the only coach on the staff that deals with the whole team.
2: Like Cower said, special teams coaches, they coach everybody. Hey, Goose, quick question here. Who do you think the next special teams coach to land a head coaching position?
3: Dave Talb of the Chiefs. You know, he's, um, he's, he's one of the few coaches had recent head coaching um, uh, interviews for positions, and I think he'll be the next one.
2: Okay, thanks, guys. Up next, we're going to speak to the only guy to hold for Hall of Fame kickers, Jan Stenard and Morton Anderson. Can you name him? Well, you'll find out when we return. This is the Talk of Fame Network.
0: This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge,
2: Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, Ray Sakowicz punted in the NFL for five seasons in the early 1980s with three teams. That would be the Packers, the Lions, and the Bears. We've asked him to join us today to talk about his three seasons with Green Bay. The reason? Well, in addition to handling the punting, he was the holder for the placement kicks by Hall of Fame kicker Jan Stenrode. And before Stackowitz arrived in the NFL, guess what? He spent three years on the Michigan State campus practicing and holding on a daily basis for Morton Anderson, the only other pure-place kicker in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. So that makes him a one-of-a-kind holder. Gary spent years holding for the NFL's two Hall of Fame kickers, Morton Anderson in practice and Jan Stenrud in games, and also makes him a welcome guest here with us. Ray Stackowitz, thanks so much for being here.
7: Oh, thanks for having me. Uh, it's a it's, uh, great time to express
2: how fortunate I was
7: to be able to play and practice with two of the great kickers and, and two great friends, too.
3: Okay, Ray, let's start with Morton. You caught Morton at the front end of his career when he had one of the longest legs in football. What made him special at Michigan State?
7: You know, we had a, a kicker from Denmark before Morton, Hans Nielsen, and he was uh, influenced him Morton to come to michigan State. he had one year of high school football and he came over you know uh and i helped recruit him and it was interesting coming over with his accent and his danish outfit and dutch boy type haircut and i said man what's this and, and he brought uh he brought a little swagger and, and something to it as, as a freshman and he was able to start as a freshman and he matured and got bigger and bigger and uh Lo and behold, you know, between me and him, I was the punter. He was the kicker. We had a great duo going back then and had a lot of fun doing it.
4: You know, you caught Stenrud at the back end, of course, of his career, and he was, you know, one of the game's first and best soccer-style kickers. Uh, but he didn't seem to have the same power in his leg in 1981 that he had had, you know, earlier in his career. Uh, what him made him special, in your opinion, even when he was at Green Bay?
7: You know, I, I, I came in there after... You know, being with Morton Anderson, and then I came in there, and and then there's another guy, a Norwegian guy, and I'm thinking, wow, and they both <laughs> have the accent, and they're and, you know, and and they both have this similar mindset. Both big guys, but Jan was you know older, and he just knew the coaches. He knew Coach, you know, Star Bart Star was our coach, and it just. He was like, his age difference made him like more part of the, the coaching staff, you know, so everybody looked up to him and he brought a leadership quality and, and professional way of, uh, kicking. That was, it was really interesting, you know, being a rookie at the time and meeting all the guys. So he, he brought something special to that team and with all the, le- he was already a legend then in our, in our eyes as players. So that was unique. It's comfort. So, it was a comfort thing. Too.
2: So Ron asked you about Stenerud. Goose asked you about Anderson. I'm going to ask you about both of them. Were there any similarities between the two? Like like temperaments, kicking styles, quirks, anything? You know, both had similar size,
7: long leg type guys. They, they both were athletes in their old country. What they did before, Jan would ski in, and and uh, Morton, I think, he did a lot of soccer, handball type things. They both had a temperament and a quality they brought from the, from their hometown that's different than the, like a lot of the American kickers I was around. So I don't know, there's something special about that. And then once they developed their swing of their foot, it was almost like remind me of golfers. You know, you don't want to over hit. And they had a unique style. Once they figured those out, you know, they had to make changes. Morton Anderson was indoors a lot. Jan and I were always out in the cold. But Jan figured it out. I'll tell you what, it was, it was something to watch.
3: Do you have a favorite Morton anecdote, maybe bad snap or something happened in a, in a kid?
7: Well, let's see. Well, the one thing that reminds me, Morton senior year was coming up, and I was playing with Green Bay, and we were playing in Detroit. He calls me up. He goes, right, i got to meet Jan Stenner. So I got a buddy from Michigan State. I, said, I called him. I said, you got to pick up Morton. He doesn't have a card. We want to meet Jan. so when we were playing in the Silver Dome, they came over and said, "Hey, Jan, you got to you know meet Morton Anderson." And he goes, "Yeah, I heard about that kid." So I introduced him. And Mort was like a little kid, you know. Of course, the accents and the foreign and all the, you know, the talk—it was it was interesting. You know, we I had all my friends there, and, and we got on the bus, and Jan goes, "Man, that's one big boy." And I go, "He's just he's just starting," and from then on, we'd, we'd watch. Uh, Morton, you know, every time we, you know, watch the college kids play. And and then as time went on, Morton was just, you know the story behind that. Him and uh, him and Jan were something else.
3: You know, he kicked uh, I think he kicked 60 at Michigan State. Did anything he do surprise you?
7: Uh, no, no, he's just very confident. And once he figured it out after his freshman year, uh, uh, he was good, and we had a backup kicker that was straight on, was actually pretty good too. And and uh, and we also had a trainer that worked with us three. We go in the stadium with our long snapper, and we'd work hours and hours. And uh, Coach Darrell Rogers was fortunate enough and smart enough to let us go on our own and, and have confidence that we you know work out and and in between us two complement each other. We probably were, I'd say we were probably one of the best duos in college, you know, in my opinion.
4: You know, Ray, you know, all of us as a kid at some point in time hold a football for our brother or, or cousin Louie or whatever it is. We can't get our Charlie finger Burnham. out of there. Yeah, Charlie Brown can't get our finger out of there fast enough because we're afraid he's going to kick our hand off. Uh, for a guy who's, who, who's a professional at it, uh, was there ever a time, that first time you put the ball down where you were saying to yourself, boy, I want to get my finger out of here as fast as as <laughs> as fast as possible?
7: Yeah, well, uh, at first you think that way, then after you. You know, these guys kick, and it's never really that close to your finger. The the thing you worry about is a bad snap, Mm -hmm. and then what you're going to do, like we had to do it with Jan. And um, I ended up the ball came rolling back, which was one of the only bad snaps our snapper had. But we had to yell fire, and I look at Jan, and he doesn't know which way he's going to (laughs) go. And uh, I ran around and found Rich Wingo in the end zone, so that worked out. But. And then we had some fakes off that. So you practice it, and you get pretty darn comfortable, you know, doing it over and over and over. Um, it's a lot of fun. Uh, Jan, we'd always work out a double sessions, you know. And and then we'd uh, go over to, uh, there's a place where you can get some beers before you go eat your training table. And Jan and Lynn Dickey would always go there. And I was always thinking, man, they always have to have their two Miller lights, you know. <laughs> So I asked John, I said, "Jan, why don't you just go out with us? You know, at Saturday or whatever time we got off. You know." He goes, "I can't go out with you, young guys." And at the time, he was thirty-nine. I just said, "Oh, gee, that ain't too old, Jan. Come on." <laughs> 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 uh, was he? Uh,
4: was he different in some ways from from Morton? Were there things about him that were distinctly different?
7: I. Uh, besides the age difference and maybe a little bit of the old school you know um, knowing you know the older players and not not much he, he he's uh, we when we golf you know he had a funny swing and I, and that but that ball would go straight when he'd kick you know we we're, we're in Milwaukee stadium you know half our games back then and it was a mud pit he go Ray, see if you can make me a tee i go what How am i going to do that there's a ref looking at me I, and uh we had the worst condition and he tipped through it and somehow he kicked that thing straight. He didn't have like, like Morton, Morton's kicks were powerful and they, they come like almost like had a, a pull and they come around a little bit Whereas Jan's were really straight. And, uh, that year he was 22 or 24 or whatever. And we played in some bad conditions that year. And man, it was amazing how he, he pulled that out. And I think a lot of it has to do with, you know, is this, his, not his age, but his time in the NFL and confidence, and he, we, he brought in his favorite long snapper, and, and uh, it worked out pretty good.
2: Well, Ray, I know you said you caught Jan at the back end of his career, but in, in 1981, he had arguably the best season of his Hall of Fame career. He hit career-best 92% of his field goal tries, including, including both of his attempts from beyond 50. Just wondering, um, how locked in was he then?
7: You know, for that type of weather conditions that year and and our team was pretty good and he was able to mindset that pretty, it was amazing actually to see him um, every game concentrate and, and, and go over different situations, you know, in our practice and get ready for that muddy field, you know, at Milwaukee, the cold conditions. But uh, he'd always keep me confidence and, 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 and the snapper and, you know, the combination of that and the kicking team, and and he was able to do it. He also, you know, we had another kicker, Eddie Garcia, who was a backup, which was unusual to have two kickers. And because of all of us working together and keeping Jan young with Eddie Garcia's strong leg, I think that was a, a, a kind of a, a a booster for Jan, you know, back then. And it, and it worked out well. And I think God went on to play at Minnesota, did well there, too. We finally got indoors.
3: <laughs> Ray, what was your what was your all time favorite hold, or maybe your favorite field goal?
7: Yeah, uh, probably the time where it was a miss snapped and I ran around in and threw it. I think that was an extra point. I can't even remember. It was a touchdown <laughs> or an extra point. We'll call it a <laughs> touchdown. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, did you
3: think a pitch? That's to what Robert I tell me.
7: Uh, no, no way. Not the way he was looking. I said, I'm running. <laughs> <laughs> I th- and then we had some pass plays I think off the punt it was fun, you know, I tell you what Coach Star and all that put together a hell of a team it's just too bad we just going to go a little further
2: hey, Right, we're, we're not going to pass it but we are going to run, we've got to run to the next commercial but thanks so much for the time, really really oh,
7: enjoyed it oh, appreciate everything and uh, good talking with you guys
2: thanks Ray, thanks for thanks, Ray. that was former punter and holder Ray Stackowitz. up next it's former demolition man Hank Bauer of the S. San Diego Chargers. You're listening to The Darker
0: This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well,
2: we've been discussing special teams on today's program, specifically the best special teams players of all time. And today we have one of them with us. That's Hank Bauer, a terrific coverage player with the San Diego, not Los Angeles, San Diego Chargers. And he was so good, in fact that he made Rick Austin's all-time NFL coverage unit, largely for making what's believed to be a league record 52 special teams tackles in 1981, including 38 unassisted and 7-in-1 game. Hammer, always good to be recognized, right? Always. Always good to not be
8: forgotten. You know, um, you know back then, nobody really, uh, you know, it was kind of coach speak. Everybody says, hey... Kicking games a third of the game offense defense special teams they say it, but they don't really believe it until something bad happens uh, and uh you know and, and oftentimes it does during the course of a season, as we all know uh but uh you know i I don't think anybody aspires coming out of college or growing up say, "Hey, you know what I want to be one of the best special teams players of all time you know i just i i mean i never the thought never crossed my mind, guys. It was, for me, it was just all about trying to help us win.
2: Well, maybe it didn't cross your mind, Hank, but you were one of the best special teams players of all time. 52 tackles in one year? How do you do something like that? What was your secret? Well, you know what?
8: I, I think I've had a lot of time to look back because it happened a long time ago. And, and uh, I, I think when you know, there was this perfect storm of, of, uh, of a cyclonic special teams player that was in the making that I had no clue of. Uh, you know, I played, I played, I played nose tackle, fullback in high school in Orange County. It was an all CAF, all Orange County full uh, nose tackle. So I, I, I learned, I learned all the defensive moves. You know how to get off blocks. I learned, uh, you know the uh, the button jerk, uh, the swim move. Um, you know the, the the rip, the rip and under. Uh, I learned all of those defensive moves when I was in high school. Uh, then I went to college and became a running back. Uh but I also played rugby, uh and I played rugby don 't well i guess it's okay to say it now, I even played rugby in the off season my first couple of years uh just love the sport and if you know anything about rugby you you know you just there's fifteen aside it 's a bigger field, one official mm-hmm. uh it's it 's ball patterns it 's movements, but it 's really open field tackling and and you can 't take wasted steps in the open field or you're going to get beaten rugby so you know I think you add all those things up. I had the components of a defensive player, maybe the mentality of that. Uh, you know, I had the skills of a ball carrier and, uh, and, uh, gosh, uh, you know, the, um, uh, all the other skills of uh, pass protection that you have to use as a running back, uh, you got to do that in pump protection. So had all the elements covered, uh, as I was in my formative years. And then, Again, you know what? Look, at my first year, that's what guys did to make it. My second year, I started, never came off the field. By the way, first year, I made 20000 and was elated. Second year, I started, play, never came off the field, played every special team, every player running back almost, scored nine touchdowns, every special team. And then, then the third year, I became a short yardage back and special teams. Uh, so to me, whatever role they wanted me to play, I was just happy to be a part of a great team. Um, and 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 do it, and then and then at the end of my career, the last bunch of years, uh, I became the special teams captain, and and uh, I, I took to it because, hey, Ron, you know Clark, guys, right? I was smart enough to know I'm not James. I wasn't James Brooks or Chuck Muncie, so <laughs> I wanted I wanted to help contribute to help us win.
2: Well, I I know. Some of our listeners, most of our listeners, I think will find this hard to believe, though not anyone who knows you, Hank. But I remember you telling me once how you broke your neck during a game and you continued to play on. True story?
8: Absolutely true. Uh, I had to retire because of it. Us. Uh, if you know anything about uh, anatomy, human anatomy, uh, the body of C5, which is the biggest part of your vertebrae, uh, had fractured all the way through. Now I wasn't stupid. I mean, I <laughs> that's arguable depending on who you talk to, but uh I was I never I never been in such any kind of pain like that. I continued. I played seven games that year with that medicated. Uh they they took an x-ray but it didn't show the fracture and I mean, I went from bench pressing 430, to I couldn't even do the bar. Uh I couldn't lift a pan up off the stove with my left arm. And I knew something was seriously wrong, and, and, and my whole left side started to shrink. Uh, the pain was unbelievable, but again, we medicated back then. Um, and when I finally saw a specialist and they did a uh, spinal tap and, and, and a contrast scan, uh, I had surgery immediately. So, uh, I mean, I, I wouldn't have done it uh, had I known, but played seven games with it and very thankful that I'm uh, I'm alive, I'm walking, I'm talking, and... Able to play golf and work out and and not pain-free, mind you, but uh, live a pretty
3: good lifestyle here, guys. So, Bobby, what is your best special teams anecdote?
8: anecdote. Oh, God. Uh, gosh, uh, there are there's so many of them. You know, the games change so much and the rules have changed so much. Uh, you know, back then, you know, they, they would run three- and four-man attached wedges at you. And uh, if, if, if you got by your first or second blocker i mean it's just you against these four behemoths running full speed at each other and uh i used to love that because because you know i wanted to see if those guys would flinch because i know i wasn't going to flinch you know but 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 then back then you could actually cut the wedge you could they could cut you uh which means you know they they block you block you low that's what a cut block is and and then I even started going over the top, you know, jumping over the top when I got to him at times. Uh, do a little windmill. Uh, I'll never forget. The first time I did that was against Philadelphia Eagles, and there was a guy by the name of uh, Billy Campfield, I think was his name, yep. running it back, and I and, uh, guarantee didn't see it coming. But I went right over the wedge. They, they caught my leg, and they just kind of flipped me sideways, and I leg-whipped him right in the neck and just dropped him. Uh, so that was one of my favorite plays that I remember. <laughs> but there were, you know, and I always wondered, did, did, when you hit somebody, are your eyes open or closed? <laughs> of all the guys you've had on, have you ever asked that question? That's
3: a good
4: question.
2: <laughs> <laughs> That's a good question. My
4: eyes are closed just thinking of it, just the story. <laughs> well,
2: well
8: I can give you my answer. Okay. Uh, I, I, I went into a wedge against the Raiders in Oakland, and – I, you know, it's it's one of these things where you see three guys coming, four guys coming. They're, they, you know, really, their shoulder pad to shoulder pad, and the runner and the and the and the returner is right behind them, coming full speed. And I'm going to go in, and I just made up my mind. I'm going in. I'm going to blow them up, right? And I'm going to blow them up, and I'm going to see if they flinch or if I flinch. And when I got to the wedge, all I remember. I knew I was there was going to be, you know, copious contact. <laughs> and there was. But when I got up, all I remember was the crowd going crazy and my I'm kind of foggy, but I look over and I and I somehow got through the wedge and it was a, you know, full speed impact with the runner who was going full speed.
7: Oof. And
8: and at that point I realized my eyes were probably closed most of the time I hit people. <laughs> Cuz I, I didn't know who I hit. I thought I hit a bunch of big guys, and it ended up being a return guy by accident.
3: <laughs> Hank, you later coached special teams. So, what was more difficult, playing special teams or coaching special teams?
8: Well, I got out of coaching. Um, you know, I, I uh, to, to to me, I, I just it, it just wasn't as fulfilling when, when I, I would see guys come through that had a thousand times more talent than I did. And, uh, no matter what I did, I, 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 couldn't reach them. I, I couldn't get them to, to maximize their potential. And, uh, that was really, really frustrating, especially when your, you know, your job performance is being evaluated, uh, as such. Here, here are the guys. They're talented. What are you going to do as a coach to maximize their, their performance and their talent? And when you tell the front office, uh, you know hey, by the way Rick, Juan, hey by the way uh they can't that kid can't play you know he he looks like Tarzan, but he'll play like Jane, <laughs> and they'll said well you that's your job as a coach, and you tell him at this level no uh the kid's never going to be able to, to 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 drop his you know whats and uh uh and and when they don't, and then you're held accountable, that was really frustrating for me
4: well to to your point there uh, Hank, you know what's I always tell friends of mine that didn't play. First thing you ever hear as a football player when you're whatever you are, seven years old, is put a hat on a hat. And the last thing you hear the last day you leave is, Why didn't you put a hat on a hat? You know, I mean, that's that's right. It's the game, you know. You may not, you may say it's not safe. Well, neither is being a fireman, you know. I mean, it that's what it is. And,
8: and you know, the other out. thing is, we signed up for it, didn't we? No, yep. nobody's yeah, forcing right. us to play the game, right? right. Yeah. That's right. I that's mean, right. Just, just make sure that the players are educated. And trained, and I think they are. More so than they ever have been. Uh but but again, we choose to do that. I chose to run down on kickoff because I wanted to help my team win. And then I then I found out what a what a joy it was to knock the living crap out of somebody, <laughs> to break a wedge. You know, to, to to hit a guy so hard. I hit this guy in Kansas City so hard one time. I mean it was a freight two freight trains running sixty yards apart, seventy yards apart Didn't break stride. His name is Horace Belton. I think you could probably find it on video. And the last thing I remember was looking over after we had collided and both knocked each other back. I mean, think about that. 70 yards apart, full speed, and then coming to a dead stop, knocking each other back. And I looked over, and his eyes rolled back in his head, and blood was coming out of his mouth. And I think I broke his ribs and his jaw. Uh, And and I was knocked doozy, woozy. Uh, And, 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 uh, you know, that's the last thing I remember. Those, those things, those things were fun to me, you know, those, those are the most fun times I can remember. I, I wanted to test myself. I wanted to see how far I could take it before my body broke down. What was going to, what was going to break down first, my mind or my body? And my, my mind won out obviously, because my, (laughs) you know, my, my mind made my body do things that, Human beings aren't, aren't aren't supposed to do. Yep. AFC Championship in 1981, uh, opening kickoff. Again, we're wearing yellow pants, just a jock strap, no shorts underneath back then. I had a very severe stomach flu. I would like to apologize publicly to all the Oakland Raiders that played that day. <laughs> I went down, and I and I didn't want to get cramped. So I took copious amounts of fluids, took a couple bags of IV before I went out in opening kickoff i hit this guy so hard it came out right out my back end oh. <laughs> <laughs> and it was <laughs> and that think about this biggest game of your life and you know people are watching i played the whole first half like that and every oh. time i walked by the raider huddle i just had to i just had to back up and say hello to the boys <laughs>
2: That was the game when they said, hey, Witzer, you played like crap.
8: (laughs) (laughs) You're exactly right, my friend.
2: (laughs) Hank Bauer, always, always good to catch up with you. And remember this, RC, baby. RC, remain
8: constant no matter how bad it gets, no matter how good it gets.
2: Just (laughs) remain constant. Thanks, Hank. That was former Chargers special teams great Hank Bauer. Up next, it's the two-minute drill. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network.
0: This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. We're
2: just about out of time, so Robert. That's the two-minute two Yep, it's the two-minute drill. So, Gooseman, get us started.
3: At 40, does Tom Brady really need OTAs?
2: Tom Brady needs nothing, Goose, outside of an apology from Robert, Roger Goodell. <clears throat> For what? Not going to OTAs? (laughs) (laughs) Speaking of off-season
3: work, remind me again the purpose of rookie minicamps.
2: Well, it used to be to sell newspapers. Now I guess it's to sell the NFL Network.
3: I think it's to
4: teach them a few plays
3: before the veterans come in and make them carry their pads. John Elway says the Chargers are the team to beat in AFC West. What say you?
2: Well, Goose, that depends on if they find a place kicker with a clue, so no. No.
4: I say John Elway is speaking with forked
2: tongue.
3: <laughs> what NFL team would most benefit from the signing a veteran tight end Antonio Gates?
2: The Celtics. Patriots. Look how dangerous
3: he'd be on the other side of Gronk. How soon before Lamar Jackson takes over for Joe Flacco as quarterback of the Ravens?
2: As soon as Joe Flacco demonstrates he's not an elite quarterback.
4: I would say that depends on how soon they can fix his GPS system in his arm.
3: Troy Aikman, Daryl Johnson, Tony Romo, and now Jason Witten. Will a television booth be as close as any Cowboy gets to the playoffs in the near future?
4: In a word, yes. You yeah, know That depends on whether or not they own a ticket agency, and they'll be right there in the playoffs.
3: Speaking of the Cowboys, Dak Prescott says he wants to be the best quarterback ever to play for the Cowboys. What are the chances he becomes as good as Don Meredith, much less Hall of Famers Troy Aikman and Roger Stubuck? Uh
2: About as good as Tony Romo getting to a Super Bowl goose in helmet and pads. Gooseman, that would be Dandy,
4: but he's not going to be as good as Dandy Don.
3: <laughs> More Cowboys. Wide receiver Terrence Williams decided it would be a good idea to flee from his damaged Lamborghini in the wee hours of the morning. If you owned a Lamborghini, would you flee? <laughs>
2: no, I wouldn't flee my Yugo. <laughs>
4: <laughs> if I owned a Lamborghini, I would also own a driver. <laughs> <laughs>
2: All right.
3: <laughs> Josh Allen, Marcus Allen, or Allen Iverson?
2: Steve Allen.
3: Practice. We do, we talking about practice. <laughs> AI is the man. The Eagles will visit the White House in June. What percentage of the roster will skip the trip?
2: That'd be everyone
4: but Ron Jaworski. Counting the owner? One less percentage than they expected.
2: That's the end of the game. We'd like to thank Bill Cower, Bobby April, Ray Stankowitz, Sandra Hank Bauer, the Witzer for joining us, Robert Harris Jr. for producing us, and you for listening to us. If you'd like to hear this or any other podcast, just go to our website, com, or look for us on iTunes or your podcast app. Otherwise, you'll find us next week at this time and on this station. We'll be here. We hope you will be, too.